Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited, but I've just come into possession of a cure for insomnia. Welcome again to the Good Trash Do Cinema. This is our, and again, the vomit noise comes from Chappelle Stewart, but this is our spinoff show in which we talk about movies that belong on film study course syllabi. This week's film is 12 Angry Men, or three really angry men, three moderately angry men, and six guys who just want to go watch baseball. But before we get into that film, we do need to do some quick introductions to my left, sir, if you would. My name is Dalton Stewart. How are you guys doing tonight? We good? My name is Dalton Stewart. Uh, I like talking about movies. Uh, I also have a degree in sociology from the University of Central Oklahoma. And uh, when I'm not needlessly talking about films at night, I am a social worker. Thank you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Across the table, if you would, ma'am. My name is Alexandra Bohannon. I'm a graduate student at the University of Oklahoma. And I am about to start a new job working as a graduate assistant in the Women's Leadership Initiative. Excellent, excellent. Across the table, sir, if you would. I am Arthur Gordon, and I doesn't speak good English. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad that someone said a quote. I couldn't really generate one from my memory banks. That's hilarious. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. My name is Dustin Sells, and I think we should take a vote. But let's move on and uh, begin to talk about 12 Angry Men. It is a political-slash-courtroom thriller or... Slow burn, perhaps? Definitely not a thriller. Yeah, not not. <laughs> well, there's a chase scene. Which is why it's awesome. No, when he gets up from the chair and he goes across. And to figure out how much time it takes. How, I mean, it's like the Bourne movies right there. I was right talking about all the guys that chase him into the bathroom. It was like they were pulling out a heist for a heist film. I mean, it really was. It really had a lot of energy, I think, that moment did. It's a good movie. Or, <laughs> <laughs> this is a great movie. Is it, is, it is a great movie. So of course, good. this is a good trash to cinema. What we're going to do right now is our quick reviews, but our reviews are not even reviews. We're going to talk about why this is elevated into the place it is in which you have to take a look at it in various film studies courses. Why it always, or typically, or frequently makes those syllabi. And so, of course, we're recommending it, even if we happen to have hated it. We're, of course, recommending the film, but uh, we are going to talk about why this film is elevated. And so, to begin that conversation, we need first a synopsis to describe (laughs) the film in question, just in case... You haven't seen that it. would be helpful. Very. And so, Arthur Gordon, voice of NPR, if you would, sir. A dissenting juror in a murder trial slowly manages to uh, convince the others that the case is not as obviously clear as it seemed in court. That's spot on. That was, really, <laughs> that was really solid. That was a really, really solid Terry Gross. Makes Thank me you. very happy. Uh, so let's begin now, and let's just go through our quick, uh, what we think about the film and what elevates it. I begin to you, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? Well, you know, essentially, what 12 Angry Men is, is a courtroom drama. I, I mean, nuts and bolts, pure and simple, that is what it is. What really, I mean, if you, again, that is if you're trying to pigeonhole it into a particular drama. What really just makes 12 Angry Men stand out to me is the use of the single location, which is kind of one of the, the most famous things about this film. Um, now there there are some moments where that does keep it from being visually dynamic. 
Um, it is very play-like in that it has that, that limited use of location, and I, I imagine its roots as a teleplay, uh, as a, essentially a made-for-TV movie, has something to do with that. It was probably written at, with one location to keep costs down. But it doesn't ever feel stilted in the way that, uh, you know, the films that were actually, you know, uh, originally written for the stage or were adapted mm-hmm. from stage plays, those can often feel stilted and like, ah, oh, this doesn't make sense that it's in one place. Yeah. Why are these people not leaving? Uh, here, it is very much that they cannot leave. That's why they're not leaving. And that, that aids the sense of the, the boiling tension, this, you know, the, these lenses on the camera, they get, you know, the, the shots just get tighter and tighter and tighter and tighter as the film's film goes on mm-hmm. uh, and it just really puts you in that room and, and it feeds into that tension um, and I think that's something that really makes this film work in a lot of ways other than it being well written and well acted and just an overall engaging story uh, of you watching these men react to something um, there is just something really fabulous and, and a, just an achievement that is impeccable to watch uh, that is making that same location look dynamic throughout the film because mm-hmm. we're in the same room for mm-hmm. 90 minutes yeah. they keep finding new places to put the camera they keep finding new ways to make it look interesting whether it's how uh, one of the characters uh, you know is using the room I'm thinking here of course of Henry Fonda and the most antagonistic of the jurors whose number I cannot remember and also Lee J. Cobb Lee J. Cobb thank you three I believe I want to say three is correct but yeah he, he is also usually the other one doing something yeah. in the room, other than Henry Fonda, obviously, because they're at loggerheads with each other throughout the film. But each one of the jurors gets a moment, and they all are always doing something interesting in that space that they are constrained within. So, I mean, really, there is a reason when people talk about 12 Anger Men, they just go, oh, 12 Anger Men. Because it's still, to this day, such an interesting use of a single location, I think. Other than, of course, the bathroom. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, the bathroom's connected, though. So exactly. Somehow it works. It's, an adja- it's a small well, it's, adjacent room. It's still all in the courthouse. I mean, yeah. they leave the courthouse and then the movie's over. Yeah. So. Righto, righto. Well, Miss Bohannon, what say you? What what elevates this beyond just basic good trash? Well, this is definitely not good trash. This is, this is art. I would say that as a first-time viewer of this film... I was I was astounded at as Dalton said how they can captivate my attention for 90 plus minutes in a single location and it's a black and white movie and they're all dudes. I mean all of these things the fact I mean well they're all all, all dudes with very similar viewpoints and a lot of them tend to echo each other. Um, I was very surprised at how well they could keep my attention and keep my interest in the story and in what was happening and being invested. I think one of the high points of this movie is the fact that the investment in the story is so profound. I felt like I could relate to these characters even though their lives are completely unrelatable and completely unlike mine as a woman in the 21st century. And these are guys smoking. I guess smoking. I just always pick it up on how many people smoke in these older movies, but... In this case, it's all of them. All of them. (laughs) 12 out of 12. 12 out of 12 smoke. (laughs) But it felt like the characters were were real to me, and the fact that they were using their method acting skills so well, I didn't really have any chords where any of the things that they portrayed 
were unbelievable. And and I love this this setting where it's like this professional setting happens kind of in media res and you don't know anything about these characters but slowly but surely it's like a a sieve and then at one point some water starts trickling out and that's bits of their personal life and that happens with about every character in this film especially the angry juror the angriest of all the 12 men with the sun and all of that that was that was some that was rough but um the fact that they were able to drip these pieces about these people to make them more like people, I thought that was just fantastic. They had, you know, great direction. Camera was superb. I mean, and it kept me interested, invested, and I am definitely going to give it a second watch. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what elevates this film? Well, first and foremost, I think we uh, know where Jonathan Demme got the inspiration for those off-putting point-of-view shots uh, that he so eloquently uses in Silence of the Lambs. For real. Oh. <clears throat> well played. Yeah. This is something Lumet uses quite a bit here, which is quite effective in driving thematic and tonal elements home uh, for the audience. In a sense, breaking the fourth wall, which is counterintuitive to the classical style. Uh, Lumet here doesn't really deviate from the style, but he does add flourishes to build up on the style, which uh, builds into or buys into this idea of Hollywood becoming a blob of absorbing other artistic traits from around uh, the world and from different filmmakers. Uh, the mo- other major thing of note here is the setting, as Dalton and Alexander both mentioned. Uh, we had a single location setting. This is highly unusual, even by today's standards, as it requires a very talented actor or actors, and we have 12 very talented actors here working, and a strong script to make up for the lack of settings. It helps to make the film feel more claustrophobic and tense as we're stuck in a room with a bunch of guys who keep looking at us and bringing us into their world. Lume also very carefully keeps us from feeling like a stage play, as Dalton mentioned. Uh, this could have easily turned into something that just felt very forced, and I think of something like Hitchcock's Rope, which does feel like you're watching a play, and this does avoid that trap. Um, but the camera work and Lume's crafting keep the film fresh, and it feels very modern in a very cookie-cutter time of movie-making. Watching this, it felt like I was watching something made recent. Yeah, This I is would... a David Fincher film. Mm-hmm. This is Aaron Sorkin. I would, is, I would echo that totally. I'm I mean, 100% there. Even the black and white, it doesn't feel dated at all. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's brilliant. I work. kept on thinking the whole time, I'm like, so I realized this is the technology they had to produce a black and white film, but I was just like, is this, are they choosing this as, a, as an artistic comment to make it black and white? Like, if they did produce it, if it was a point in time they could produce in color and they chose black and white, it'd be really interesting to see and think about why, why would they make that choice. Yeah, I think it certainly was, and part of the reason why the film was such a financial failure was because it wasn't in Technicolor. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I do think there, there's, some, there's some intentionality there that makes it, I think, stark, mm-hmm. uh, the black and white. Yeah. I don't know if it works in color. Mm-hmm. Oh, no. It's fair play. I was just thinking about, <coughs> yeah, Aaron Sorkin has made this movie before. <laughs> It's called A Few Good Men. Yeah. yeah. He wrote this movie. Yeah. Yeah. So, good call. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What I would contribute to the conversation is its influence, and the influence I really want to talk about right now is the influence of how LeMay moves the camera throughout the course of the film in order to achieve uh, certain senses and emotions and you know, forming a, a different form of character. You know, the room itself kind of functions as a character. You mm-hmm. could almost say the heat 
in the room is a character throughout. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, man, I tell you what, the fifties was a gross time because they go in the men's room and they don't have paper towels. They got the one towel hanging there, and everybody they stick their fingers, faces, cigarettes and the yeah, icky, icky <laughs> times. Uh, but what happens as the film begins, as most bottle episodes in television series work, the camera begins very high up, and it also begins with a very narrow lens, and therefore there's a lot of focus back behind the characters, and you see much of what's going on, and it is sort of, in a way, an establishing shot. And, and many, many films and television series that sort of do the bottle episode are doing that sort of thing, uh, famously Breaking Bad's Fly episode. Oh, yes. It, it's something along those sort of lines, and that's, again, one of those influences that happens. About halfway through the film, though, interestingly, the camera moves down to about eye level, and the lens gets just a little longer. And so the background is still there, but you see it, and it's still pretty much in sharp, deep focus. And you're beginning to identify more with the characters. You're beginning to understand who they are as individuals. You're understanding, you know, the the, the, the easiest juror to dismiss in our minds, the racist juror who looks like he ought to be playing the role of one of the Green Gringotts trolls in a Harry Potter film. Confirmed. I'm just saying. Would uh, echo this. Uh, he, that was Ed Bagley's dad, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, Ed Bagley's dad. Yeah, yeah it's so funny. <laughs> but he totally looks like a Green Gringotts troll. Oh my god, that's, that's fabulous. And, uh, you know, when, when, when you're beginning to see these characters and know more about him. You're knowing that he's got a garage and he runs somewhere in the slums and he's losing money. And you're finding out all the other little fun facts about advertising and architecture and and stock brokering and uh, you know, et cetera, so on and so forth. So the camera is there, but it's a little closer in as far as the lensing goes and the focus. Now as we get to the last third of the film, what happens is the camera actually moves below eye level and you feel like you're being dominated by the men. You feel a little beaten down honestly, because you're being beaten down by the process. And that's precisely what the camera does to create that sensation. And the lens gets narrower yet, and the the focus becomes shallower yet, and you see nothing behind, and it creates this deeply claustrophobic sense, which happens oftentimes throughout film as well. I I think of this scene that's in the outdoors, where uh, Al Pacino is standing off against Robert De Niro in Michael Mann's Heat. And you see the very shallow focus. The lens are outdoors, but all you see is the blah blurbs of the lights back behind him. And you feel like you're just caught up in the middle of these two guys, even though they're standing in the middle of a field or a parking lot. Or I'm not, I can't quite remember exactly where their location is. It's outdoors. Mm-hmm. But it creates that sort of claustrophobic nearby sense. And it's been copied and emulated and placed in other situations and other places. And what LeMay has done in this film is given us a, a bit of a grammar to use to talk about character, to talk about space and to also create senses of claustrophobia or senses of uh, just real spatial relationships. And so that's why this film is super influential, not just for courtroom purposes, but for just how you use the camera. So that would be what I would bring to offer about that. But let's move on. Let's talk about some analysis at this point, because that's what we do. This ain't a review show. It's an analysis show. And so we have some things to say about what's going on in the film narratively and formally and structurally. And so we will do that at that time. I ask you, Miss Alexandra Bohannon, what bring you? I would like to talk this evening about um, the use of kind of an unreliable narrative. I feel like this movie, you, you're led to trust the main major, Henry Fonda. You're led to trust him, but why is he the right one? I felt myself questioning this frequently the whole time. The fact that at the end, when the angriest of all jurors 
is, you know, berating him, you realize, well, his facts, Fonda's facts, are just as circumstantial feeling and, and in nature and as strung together as the case that the uh, prosecution bought, brought against this young man. And then, of course, you're left with the question, well, then, who did kill this young man's father? Um, I felt that was a really interesting choice, and it left me questioning myself the whole time. Would you guys say that there's a really big question left at the end, if he's guilty or innocent? Do you think if that was this movie was made today, that that would be played up more? I think if this movie was made today, it would be crystal clear that he was innocent at the end of the film. And I think at the end of the film... We don't know whether or not he's innocent. All we know is that he might not have he might not have done it, and that's enough. I think we've become the, the way, particularly a film about the American criminal justice system. The way we're geared now, we want we want a solid answer at the end of the film. Well, either that optimistic or the equally cynical ending, I think, is also possible today. That he would turn out to be acquitted, but actually guilty. Yeah. And right. I, I think there would be definite closure there. There would be closure that we would know Henry Fonda actually committed the murder himself, and that's why. <laughs> Twist. Because I was thinking the whole time, I I was flashing back to Total Recall. I was recalling the Total <laughs> Recall, and I mean that's definitely a movie that doesn't give you. A definite closure mm-hmm. of if he's is he awake is he lobotomized etc so that's what made me question this film and i was like well what if you know if this movie were made today would it be given the same treatment a different treatment regarding the ending and um my second little bit of analysis i'd like to bring is definitely the kind of the it's not necessarily the patriarchy again, but just the use of patriarchal figures in this movie. Well, the the generational differences definitely, um, because you have jurors of varying ages. Of course, Henry Fonda's character finds a friend in that older gentleman, and they actually swap names at the end. So it does imply that there is kind of a kinship or brotherhood there, but. It's given the whole time that the jurors that are all against Fonda are treating Fonda as a child. They're talking down to him almost constantly. They're, you know, kind of taking these tones, completely disrespecting him, especially the six non-committal jurors that are, you know, playing tic-tac-toe in the back. You know, they're doing childish activities, but they're kind of doing the same activities that parents do nowadays when their kids are off playing and they're on their iPhones playing tic-tac-toe, things like that. And then I would like to highlight the father scene at the very end, you know, that kind of draws into question whenever I saw this great parallel between the the son being tried and then the, the father and son duo issues happening with the angriest juror you know it makes you wonder you know what pushes a son to do that maybe the son ran away to avoid doing something he regretted potentially like that one child did who was on trial it it's really interesting to see the all these interrelationships would you say that at the end of the film the rest of the Jurors would res- respected Fonda more, or did they just was he still just a kid to them? Oh, I, th- I know. I think he won the day. Yeah, I, for I think, sure. I think he absolutely won the respect of everyone in the room. That yeah, and that kind of gives that you know his story may parallel the being on trial. Definitely, he's 
not the child, the kid, isn't just the one on trial. He is also being put on trial for, you know, standing up for what's right and or what he feels is what's right because of the unreliable narration in this film. Excellent. Thank you very much, Miss Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what analysis bring you? Well, what I would like to highlight from this film, and it's something I already mentioned, and that is the point of view shots that Lumet uses throughout the movie. It is something that would show up again in Demi's Silence of the Lambs. Uh, Lumet constantly goes back to these extreme close-ups throughout the film, and Dustin talked uh, in length about the camera work, and it's very, very insightful, and it's very good, very relevant, and uh, that was very good. I, think, I like that. Thanks, Dustin. Uh, what this does is to serve to put the audience in the room with the 12 jurors. It emotionally puts us into the conversation with these men, and it seeks to make the issues at hand more real. It calls us to question the decisions being made and forces us to choose a side. Is he guilty or not guilty? That's the question that not only the jurors are faced with, but us as well. It also allows us to see the emotion and the struggles these men are going through. Uh, we get a close look into their eyes. We get to see into the depths of their souls from the selfishness of Juror 7, who solely wants to end this thing to go to a game, despite the heavy price someone else will have to pay, uh, or to the bigot Juror 10, who thinks all slum boys are bound to be criminals. And it scares us because using these extreme close-ups makes these men a mirror for our own views, our own selfish desires, and our own ideologies. Uh, to further this mirror representation effect, the film completely strips these men of their identities by solely referring to the, each of them as juror until the very final scene of the movie where we only learn two names. Uh, this is another useful technique in placing us into the story and challenging what we believe and what we know to be true. By taking away their names, we as an audience are further able to identify with and sit in the chair at the table. In doing so, Lumet forces us to recognize something in ourselves. Uh, to quote Christian Metz, quote, I also know that it is I who am perceiving all this, that this perceived imaginary material is deposited in me as if on a second screen, that it is in me that it forms up into an organized sequence, that therefore I am myself the place where this really perceived imaginary exceeds to the symbolic by its inauguration as the signifier of a certain type of institutionalized social activity called the cinema. In other words, the spectator identifies with himself with himself as a pure act of perception, as the condition of possibility of the perceived, and hence is a kind of transcendental subject. Twelve Angry Men helps us to realize and identify traits within our own self. Um, it acts as a mirror to see what we look like, and it also holds up a mirror to show us what is in our soul and what is below the surface and what makes us really tick. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, what analysis bring you, sir? Well, I think if you're going to engage with 12 Angry Men, um, you really do have to engage with the conversation it's having with the American criminal justice system. Uh, I think you owe it to yourself to do that. Um, this is a film that comes up a lot when people of a certain age, uh, generally people who were children around the time this came out, uh, or who were in high school, uh, you know, within 20 years of this coming out, so they got showed it a lot. Um, famous people who go into the law, uh, famous lawyers, uh, Supreme Court justices, general, uh, attorney generals, rather, um, and they all say that Henry Fonda was a terrible juror, and I think those people are all dumb. <laughs> okay. I think all of those people that are smarter than me, or at the very least had more money than me and worked harder than me, are dumb, and here's why. Technically, yes, they are correct. Henry Fonda did something that you should not do uh, if you were following, to the letter, the rules of America's criminal justice system. 
But I think what Henry Fonda and Sidney Lumet and um, the gentleman who wrote this film, whose name I can't think of for the life of me, are saying is that yes, and that's the problem, is that you can't do what Henry Fonda did. Because what Henry Fonda is doing is rallying against an inherently flawed system. And I say that with with respect and, you know, appreciation for the system. I I really do. Um, Because in theory, it's great. And that's what Henry Fonda is working on, is this notion of reasonable doubt. Which is really kind of... (laughs) Let's face it. uh, In the early, or the late 18th century, when somebody... When we set out our uh, penal codes and set a reasonable doubt, that was about the most progressive thing the world had seen in a while. That... No, 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 no. You don't have to prove you're innocent. You have to prove that there's a reason to doubt that you're guilty. And that is kind of a beautiful thing. The problem is we are working on a very flawed system, particularly in the 1950s when for a murder trial there really was no such thing as hard evidence. You were always going to have mostly circumstantial evidence. And that was a murder trial from the dawn of man till about 40 years ago. Um... And, you know, even to this day, it becomes a problem sometimes. It's always, there's only going to be only so much concrete evidence. Um, But, you know, one of the keys of our our penal system, you know, our particularly criminal law, is this idea of, you know, witnesses and such. This has gone on and on and on about in the film. And if you read anything about murder investigations, you will learn that the worst piece of evidence you can rely upon is witness testimony. It is complete and absolute garbage. More importantly, and this is getting to what I'm actually trying to say here, police and attorneys will actively avoid using or try to get thrown out witness testimony from one person of one ethnic or racial group testifying against another person. The reason for this is they cannot tell them apart. Mm. And I wish I was kidding, Mm. but... Statistically speaking, if you are of a certain racial or ethnic grouping, you are more likely to grow up around more people of that same grouping, meaning you have more familiarity with faces of that grouping. Right. Why this is relevant here is we have a whole neighborhood of people saying that this kid committed this murder. With Okay. I know it was 1950, so they couldn't just come out and say, was he Puerto Rican? Was that what he what, what they, they meant did, when they, he kept it, saying he's one ambiguous. of those? Was it, you think it was intentional? Yeah, That's a good point. You're right. Intentionally ambiguous. Okay. I didn't know if that was like a... Well, Hayes Code was over by that point, because it's what, early 60s? No, it's 57. 57. So Hayes Code's still in effect? There's still a Hayes Code. Okay. So I thought that maybe it was that kind of thing. They couldn't be too political. It's an intentional ambiguity is what I read. <clears throat> that's, that's even better. The reason I, I'm coming to that is because this young man has, quote, a jury of his peers. Now, the men that are his jury, first of all, men, important to point out, because it's, you know, the late 50s. Um, Could women stand on a criminal jury in the 50s? Sure. Okay, I thought Mm -hmm. so. Well, that was just the movie they wrote then. But, you know, they probably should have, maybe, I don't know. That's a different conversation. Women would have messed it up. Just admit it. That's a different conversation for a different day. I don't think that. But go make us a sandwich, Alex. (laughs) Okay, I'll get right on that. Do you guys like uh, mayonnaise on it? No. It's disgusting. All of the men on this jury are significantly older 
and uh, granted, this kid's like 17, 18, right? These men are all in their late 30s, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, or later. There's only one person from a similar socioeconomic background to him. Uh, and only one person that isn't a American-born Anglo. Mm-hmm. That is not a jury of his peers. That is a jury of white dudes with money. Mm-hmm. All of them. Even the one that was raised poor is doing okay now. That is a problem because the that is, to me, like, one of the flaws they're just shouting out in this film is that this is not a jury of his peers. This is a jury of the, quote, majority. And when we're dealing with an issue like this, you actually need either, one, a real representative group of someone's peers, or, B, not even a representative group based on population, just people that are that person's peers. Mm -hmm. And that is a huge fallacy of our criminal justice system. Liberty and justice for all. Mm, No, not really. And again, I think that's what Sidney Lumet is trying to engage with, is this idea that for the beauty of reasonable doubt, for the beauty of democracy, for the beauty of Henry Fonda saying, this is a man's life, you have the more realistic scenario, which is how this film starts. Twelve men walk into a room and are ready to kill a young man the moment they walk in. And some of them are gleeful about it, because that is some people's idea of justice. Mm -hmm. When in reality, we should be saying... This is a man's life. Maybe there are more factors to consider than were brought up in the trial because maybe that public defender is overworked and underpaid and maybe the DA is pretty damn good at his job because DAs get paid pretty good money. Maybe that's a question we should be bothering to ask ourselves. And maybe the next time a Supreme Court justice or general attorney or a state DA says something like Henry Fonda is a bad juror, maybe you should say, well, maybe you're a bad lawyer. Because mm-hmm. maybe you haven't considered all of the things that have built your career to where it is. And maybe they should be considering that themselves. If they think that the system that they are representing is so unflawed that we shouldn't have people like juror number 10, 11, whatever, doesn't matter. Eight. Eight. Juror number eight questioning the very fabric of this system and saying maybe we are doing this all completely wrong and maybe those paragons of our judicial system should ask themselves am I more advantaged than someone else because of the way this system is built I don't have the answer to that I don't I just think it's important like Henry Fonda said we ask the questions Mm -hmm. because if we're not then what's the point and I know I got a little soapboxy there for a second but I think that's how this movie should make you feel. I think you should have that reaction to this film. A very intensive gut, visceral reaction to this film. That then leads to a more important and more maybe uh, plotting and thoughtful uh, sociological conversation with yourself and with others about our system and its flaws and its virtues. Right. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I, I do think there is this idea about the rusted judgment and the need for reasonable doubt. Uh, you know, Lord William Blackstone said in the 1700s, it is better for ten guilty men to go free than for one innocent to suffer. And to really take the point and the time to to think about that, I think is vital and um, great importance. So Absolutely. Thank you very much. And thank you. I kind of would like to a slight piggyback on what you just said. Whenever I started watching the film, I pretty much... you. 
know immediately how it's going to turn out. I mean, you know, that he is not so much did he do it, but how the ga- the, the case is going to turn. Mm. Everyone's like, oh, it's guilty. Well, then what would the point of the movie be if everyone's like, oh, well, he's super guilty by the end. It makes no sense. Yeah. So the fact that... Yeah, dramatically, it's, pretty, it's a pretty clear lie. Yeah. yeah. And so you have to then ask yourself, well, then if the story that it's conveying is so linear that I can predict it from the beginning, then what is it really trying to say? And I think what you just said is what is trying, one of the many things it is trying to say. Very good. Thank you very much. I want to talk a little bit about how prescient this film is in regard to the 60s. It's a 1957 film, and there's a whole lot going on in it that is anticipating what's happening next. And I'll skip two examples just for brevity's sake. The first one being the need for the civil rights movement. Again, we've already referred to our Gringotts troll, who's Ed Begley's dad, uh, Egg Begley Sr. of Egg Begley Jr. Uh, so he is obviously racist, obviously, and, and these men at one point during the film all turn their back on him and they're not going to pay any attention to him. That is prescient of a time that we have not yet quite seen, but it is at least prescient of the resistance that we began to see in the 60s of the civil rights movement, of Medgar Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and others. And that's an exciting moment in this film in which we're beginning to put racism in a way that we're beginning to say this is not going to be okay. This sort of separation, this sort of uh, assumption of certain moral traits and characteristics of a person based on race. We're already getting through Brown versus Board of Education and all of these sort of major court uh, cases, so we begin to have busing and integration programs are happening now across the nation, and it's beginning to anticipate some of the great riots and uh, great protests and great moves forward that our nation would begin to see. And this particular courtroom kind of provides a microcosm too. That the other aspect of the '60s that I like to talk about is this aspect of intergenerational conflict. And I've spoken about this before, mm-hmm. but the the major movement of the film, which is I, I, a little bit less believable. The transition for uh, Lee J. Cobb's character to realize that he's just angry that this kid killed his dad because he wants his kid to appreciate him more. I I had a, a little question mark over my head at that point, too. It's a little wonky. A smidge. It could have had a little more lead up to that big... Not guilty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I didn't, I didn't quite buy it, but I get it, and it was fine. I mean, it, it was. Like, it worked, but right. eh. I wasn't going to pitch the movie like, well, this is obviously stupid. But what's going on in generational conflict and generational transformation? The way it was set up, and, and this is how some writers are describing intergenerational behaviors leading up until the mid twentieth century, is that every one of parenting age is something of a native to the planet, native to the nation and society. And they teach the children the culture, the customs, the ways of being and how to interact in that society. With the technological revolution of the mid-20th century and moving on even today, we begin to see that also the children are more native in their ability to use the technologies to understand certain cultural motifs. There began to be a counterculture, there began to be teen culture, in which the parents were required to learn from the children what to do and how to handle things. This goes, you know, in the 80s, you're, you're teaching your grandma how to program her VCR. In the 2000 odds, you're showing uh, Nana how to tweet. It, it, it's all of that sort of thing, in that 
the, the younger generation has education that they have actually become the natives. And somehow those who've always been here are now immigrants, which is a very, wow. very difficult and challenging uh, sort of situation to be in. I think it's a good way to frame it. And there is this conflict going on between uh, Lee J. Cobb's uh, son and himself, and I, we, we don't get any insight into that. All he knows is he's poured out his whole life for his son, and his son's not appreciated, but he wants to make his son a man, a man just like he was. He wants to form a son, perhaps, into that older sort of world that he was once a part of, and his son is actually trying to help his dad live in this new world that we're all a part of now, and neither one wants to learn or listen to the other, and that creates this fundamental problem, and that's why this great sloganeering of the 60s was, no, don't trust anyone over 30, and all of that that began to take place is because these people who were of the old guard were not willing to listen to any of the wisdom that the younger folks would have, and vice versa. The young people were not willing to listen to any sort of wisdom that the older guard would have, of course, there are baggages and cultures, and there are transitions that are being made. Obviously, the culture of the 50s that we're looking at in this film is, in many ways, regressive, is in many ways dangerous. The racism and the, the endemic classism and, and, and those sort of things that are obviously a part of the way that the film is structured, the culture that the film is trying to show us. So there are parts of that older generation's understanding of the world that do need to be set aside, but there's still wisdom to be gained. Don't forget, the wisest juror was the oldest one. And uh, that's an important thing to keep in mind as well. So there's something for them to be saying that needs to be listened to, but there's also some listening that needs to happen both ways. And that's part and parcel of the problem that's being, uh, I think, parsed out in that bit of conflict. There. Right. I would agree with that. I mean, from the title, 12 Angry Men, what mm -hmm. do angry men do? Yell. We watched yelling for, you know, 30 to 40 minutes Yeah, there's a couple of least. sweet shouting matches. Yeah. I mean, and what does one do when one yells? You don't listen to anybody else around you. You think... The, the reason you yell is because you think your point is the most important and it should be heard about above all others. And so obviously there's not the give and take of interlocutors whenever conversation is actually happening, when understanding is actually happening, whenever people are just mad and want everyone to think their point is the right one and the only one. Absolutely, absolutely. And the, the old man says, you know, what, what makes you think that you were born with a monopoly on the truth? Right, and, and so that's that's part of what's being interrogated. That's a that great film. line, Man, by the way. And so we love the film a lot, obviously. Uh, this is great. It's ripe with some excellent analysis. Let's move on, though, and let's just talk about it. Is it art? Is it really the level of art? Does it elevate itself beyond the good trash level or not? And then what else should be watched? I ask you, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what say you? Well, you know, I thought... Um, a little bit about films about truth, and you know what? I landed back on our last good trash uh, film, uh, Rashomon. I think Rashomon, very accidentally, by the way, we did not like say, "Oh, we should do these back to back." They are two trials, yeah. though. Yeah, it just kind of worked out that way. Mm -hmm. These films work perfectly together because they're both about justice, they're both about trials, and they're both about truth uh, in a lot of ways. And what? truth even means to a certain extent and I think both films, Rashomon obviously to a much greater extent, but I think a great deal of 12 Angry Men is what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. um, secondly, just kind of a weird pick um, thinking about really um, films that are kind of interrogating the criminal justice system um, I went with a, a film called Bad Lieutenant from 1990, I believe uh, starring Harvey Keitel a very famously transgressive film. Uh, I believe it was rated NC-17. I mean, it's it's pretty graphic. 
Um, But a a really interesting film about the ability of power to corrupt and how we place people in a position where they can uh, abuse their power uh, and also how damaging and alienating from the rest of mankind it can be to have that kind of authority over other people. Uh, And really just a a bravura performance from Harvey Keitel. If you you like Harvey Keitel at all, you need to watch this film because it is, man, it's some heavy stuff. Excellent, excellent. I like those picks very much. Miss Alexander Bohannon, uh, is it art or not? Is it elevated worthy? I'm sorry. Yeah, I don't think you answered that question. I didn't. Yeah, I Why just kind of slipped like my that? mind. Yeah, sorry. Um, I'm going to trot out the the oft-used uh, Dustin Sells line. Um, it's high middle brow. But I think that's good. I think if this film is too artsy, its message doesn't get heard. And I think because this film is high middle brow, so many people have seen it. Like, a lot of people have seen this movie, guys. Um, and I think that kind of... Just north of, of, of middle class kind of helps it be able to appeal to a really large audience. And I think that's important for this film. Uh, that being said, there are a number of artistic flourishes that should not be denied. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalston. Ms. Alexander Bohannon, what do you say? Is it art or not? And... Well, I how can I give an answer about that after hearing that great synopsis of is it art or not? I I mean, at first I would like to be go, yeah, yeah, it's art, it's art. But my personally, I just don't know if I've experienced enough art films. I'm using air quotes so you can't see them um, <laughs> to know if this is like the in the paragon, the apex of achievement and art. So, I mean, I would like to copy pasta Dalton's answer, but I would say that it is at least art. But mm-hmm. it, I don't know how hard, high of art it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd compliments this film because I do plan on watching it again, and so if you wanted to bookend it with some things, To Kill a Mockingbird's classic, and it's got the trial, the, you know, the, it does have the whole interpersonal relationships, and it does go outside the courtroom, which is um, not something we experience in 12 Angry Men. But it does have the what is truth and, of course, all of the racism in that movie. Um, Second of all, kind of a more unique pick, maybe a little more lighthearted pick. Um, In Veronica Mars, one of my favorite TV series of all time, there is an episode called One Angry Veronica in season two. And it is the premise of this movie, but it is in Veronica Mars. But the cool thing about it is that Veronica is the jury chairman. So she thinks that whoever did this crime is actually legitimately guilty. And then there's this one lady with knitting needles who is Henry Fonda. Mm. Anyway, it's, it's a really interesting point of view shift after seeing what it is admittedly and very obviously what a parrot playing off of that this source material. But it's interesting seeing it from the point of view of she's the one that just wants to go home and not do jury duty and everyone else has something to do. But, and it's the lady with the knitting needles that has the reasonable doubt. So I would definitely watch that episode. It is on Netflix and Amazon Prime, I believe. So if you want to stream it, season two, episode 10. Excellent. Thank you very much, Ms. Bohan. And Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you? Is it art or not? And what else? I, I think I'm going to echo Dalton. I think that was a pretty spot on way to say it. I, I don't think it does enough to try to circumvent or surpass that classical style it uses all those tools to push its narrative and to push its uh, ideas. And I think that's perfectly fine because this is a fantastic movie. This is one of the best movies I've probably ever seen. Mm-hmm. And, I, I mean, it's on that list. 
of the greatest movies ever, probably. And so um, I think it's a perfect example of a director, a great director, using artistic flourishes to heighten the narrative at work. I think you watch this with Roman Polanski's Carnage, uh, which would pair well here. It's another set in a one location with four really good actors. Um, I think it works. I'd also suggest, you know, if you like some courtroom stuff, just read some John Grisham, watch some of those movies they're based on. Um, the Rapid Fire script uh, takes me to back to Billy Wilder, so go watch Ace in the Hole or Sunset Boulevard. Mm-hmm. And then, like I mentioned, I think you check out Rope just to kind of see another really good movie that does feel theatrical, but it's single location. It's just really fun. Um, so, yeah. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. My verdict, I think, is that, no, it's not art, and I don't even want to call it high middle brow. I want to call it just a standard middle brow. It's, it's thoughtful. It's, it's, it's an Oscar baby sort of picture, mm-hmm. but it, it, it really is. It's very well done. LeMay knows what he's doing. The performances are all fantastic. There's nothing, nothing wrong with it, but there's nothing really all that special about it either. It's, it is, in the end of the day, it is a, is a courtroom drama that is smart, it's intelligent, it's asking questions that are sort of big meta questions that translate well in the 21st century as they did in the mid of the 20th century. But in the end, I'm like, no, this is, this is just standard fare. I don't, I, don't, I don't really know that if I was going to do something about the court system that I would use this film in a, uh, in a film studies classroom. What I might use as a recommendation is Orson Welles' The Trial. Starring Anthony Perkins, which oh. is based on a Franz Kafka novel. Yes, and, that is such such a good work. And uh, it is great, and it is very much an artistic film. I'd also recommend Winnie the Pooh uh, because of Juror Number Two, the voice of Piglet. Don't know if you noticed that or not, mm-hmm. but he what? happens to yeah. be Piglet's voice. Mm-hmm. And if you want a little bit more of that, you should have a little bit more of that. I s- I hear it mind. now, and he <laughs> looks exactly like Piglet. Isn't oh my it gosh. I've never heard such a strange little voice in my life. And oh my goodness. Anyway, sorry. Continue. Uh, for the sake of this courtroom, uh, well, well, I guess first of all, for the sake of single take films, single location films, I want to echo Arthur Gordon's selection of rope. I think that's definitely something to be taking a look at. Uh, earlier mentioned in the program was of a few good men. I think that's definitely a great courtroom film to see. Another one is a Time to Kill, which people don't really love. Sandra Bullock and Samuel L. Jackson. But it's a movie that I Matthew like. Matthew McConaughey. And, yeah. All right, all right, all right. So, good times. Say, like this man's good cast to me. I don't know about you guys. But. I, you know what? Those are films that are frequently pop cultural punchlines. I like A Few Good Men oh, and The Time to Kill a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, they're both good movies. No, I think so They're too. definitely not art, but there's some solid good trash. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And I think they're about on par with uh, 12 yeah, Good Men. Yeah. You know, in my opinion. Well, guys, thank you so much for just spending this time with us and having this conversation where we talk about something that we don't normally do on our regular show, The Good Trash Genre Cast. Of course, we can be found at Podbean, goodtrashgenrecast.podbean.com. We're at Facebook. We're also on Stitcher Internet Radio. You can follow us at iTunes. Please write a review there at iTunes. It's super-duper helpful. And, of course, follow us on Twitter. But until next time, next time we're going to look at another film. And the next film that we're going to look at is going to be during our Two months of Shocktober. I'll go ahead and announce this now. It's quite a ways in advance. By the time you hear this, it'll be a few weeks out, I think. And uh, so we're going to do two months of Shocktober in the months of September and October. Next time's pick will be related to Shocktober. Next time, we're going to be going to Spain by way of Mexico, looking at a little Guillermo del Toro pick called The Devil's Backbone. El Espianzo del Diablo. That's right. It's It's a Spanish-language film, and we'll be doing that as part of our Shocktober Horror Marathon for the months of September 
and October. But dear listener, in the meantime, take a look at a movie, take a look at some artsy stuff, take a look at some other stuff, uh, look at some good trash, have a conversation with somebody you care about, and until then, we'll see you next time. <laughs>